what is a man? Ecce homo, right? What is a man? I want to start with this quotation from the Gospel of John as a point of reflection. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. And the soldiers wove a crown of, out of thorns and placed it on his head and clothed him in a purple cloak. And they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him repeatedly. Once more Pilate went out and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple cloak. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man, Ecce Homo. I start with that quotation, brothers and sisters, today, just to kind of get us thinking, and I'll come back to Christ at the very end of my talk. It's going to kind of have a, a couple of parts. We're going to do some philosophy of the human person, and then we're going to uh, talk about masculinity, and then we're going to come back to Jesus at the end. But the uh, emphasis, of course, always is in following Jesus. Right? And uh, for all of us, men and women alike, uh, Jesus is the image of the one that we wish to be like. He gives himself totally for our salvation. So we ask this question, what is a human person? Right? Uh, Boethius famously said that uh, a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. If you've done your studies of, Aristotle, or of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, he picks that up. And then, uh, and, and basically runs with that for his entire Trinitarian theology. What's a human person? An individual substance of a rational nature that has uh, a, a body. Um, more recently, thanks to Ratzinger and kind of the Communio school of theology and philosophy, we also uncover the richness that's offered by considering the person as a being in relation. And that's going to be important as we talk about masculinity and femininity in particular, that uh, we are beings who do not understand ourselves except in relation to other persons. Aristotle uh, said that a human is a rational animal. So an animal has a body, has senses, and our bodies matter. The composition of body and soul, as we're going to touch on in just a second, is uh, absolutely essential to what it means to be a human person. So today I'm going to defend the idea that the human person is a rational animal that exists in two relational and particularly spousal modes, right? In human beings, as in other animals, there's a division between male and female. I come from, uh, my dad is a professor of agriculture at A&M, and uh, like male and female, right? We got, we got, uh, we got cow, cows and bulls, and uh, in every perfect animal, you see that distinction, um, yet in human beings, as opposed to those other animals, this division takes on a special significance because of the rational nature of the human being. So that male and female denote the potency to give oneself in a spousal, as a spousal gift in a particular way. And then I want to kind of build upon that foundation uh, in order to... Um, Talk about what it particularly pertain what particularly pertains to uh, men in the strict sense of the word, right? So, what is masculinity? So, uh, let's dive in. Um, so, as Father Finch just read in Genesis, we hear that God created man and woman. He created um, them in His image and likeness, as male and female. The human person is the pinnacle of visible creation and is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself. 
Um, and it, because of that, we can't understand ourselves except through a sincere gift of ourselves. This gift of oneself is ultimately directed towards God himself for the fullness of human flourishing. Um, and, and the fullness of self-gift is found only in the perfect love of God. However, because love rejoices in the third, it was fitting that God, uh, that man should love God through the love of his neighbor. Man was not left alone in the garden then, but rather God fashioned for him a suitable partner in the woman. Thus was born marriage, which is ordered to the procreation and education of children, and the union, the friendship, the being in relation of the spouses. Both man and woman are equal as persons, affirms the Catechism. Yet there are obvious differences, right? I mean, this is just, uh, we, we know this from a very young age. Um, human persons as being man and being woman are both called to find themselves through a total gift of a total self-gift in imitation of Christ the Lord, who was himself the perfect human. However, the specific way that we do this will be informed by our sex. If the catechism, uh, the catechism does proclaim this, right? The human person being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. Then it's not a coincidence that a particular person is a man or a woman. Right? God uh, created you as man or as woman. And um, it's con- concomitant with the creation of the human person that he or she is created specifically as a he or a she. This division of man and woman is a beautiful gift of the Lord. Now, the human person's sex is determined by the body. Right? And this is, uh, it's important when we understand that to consider the unity of the body and soul in the human person. The human person is a composite of body and soul. Um, in her dogmatic pronouncements, in particular, the church has consistently affirmed that human nature requires a soul and a body. St. Thomas Aquinas goes so far to say that like the separated souls who are in heaven before the resurrection of the body um, they, they lack something, right? They, it's like this weird uh, state of, of lack because a person, a human person, requires a body. Um, and most of those pronouncements about the unity of body and soul, they come from Christology, right? They come from uh, the things that we know about Christ, the, the affirmation of the full humanity of Jesus Christ. The human person is neither a soul trapped in a body, contra Plato and Descartes, uh, nor solely a material uh, thing, like nor solely a material body, right? So that's kind of contrary to the, the new materialists um, in the, the 20th century. The real human person is composed of both a spiritual and corporeal substance. And it belongs to the very type of thing that a human soul is then, that it's united to the body. The relation between the two is that of form to matter, um, the, the rational soul is the form of the body. Um, the soul is the act of the body. It makes the body to be what it is, um, ma- giving it every essential grade of perfection, right? Um, it, you think about the, the powers of the soul, right? Like to, to move, to, uh, to grow and to change, um, to sense 
And then the ultimately uh, what makes us human is that irrational ability to apprehend the forms, right? By the intellect's power. This means um, <clears throat> that the intellectual soul is that by which man is human, animal, living, a body, a substance, and a being. Moreover, the soul is not contained within the body as if it were a motor um, or something like that, right? Um, the two together are so related that only united do they constitute, properly speaking, a human person, right? Um, and this is made ultimately clear in the church's belief in the resurrection of the body, but particularly in the resurrection of Christ. If the body were not a constitutive part of the human uh, of being human, but merely a shell moved, as it were, by the soul, which was its motor or something like that, there would be no need for Christ's bodily resurrection. Think about that. Yet Christ rose from the dead, and uh, and in a bodily form, right? Like. You could touch him. You, no, this is a glorified body. We can get into that whole discussion at some other point. But this is an important um, thing to consider as we uh, consider what it means to be a human person. Our bodies matter because we are our bodies in a real way. And therefore, they're not merely instruments subject to our use or abuse. Now, what's the purpose of a body then? The body reveals a person. The body reveals a person. In teaching us the importance of the unity of our bodies and our souls, Christ also shows us that the body expresses our very personhood. It is the human person who acts, not merely his soul or his body. It's always the unity that acts. Even um, if that, that action is only known through a human body. The human body thus makes visible in an entirely unique way in creation a person. St. John Paul II writes, The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible that which is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Think about that. I mean, that you could spend like hours just meditating upon that quote right there. Just thinking about, okay, uh, this my body is somehow a sign of what was invisible and hidden from all eternity in God. Now, uh, okay, so we've got the unity of body and soul. We've got the idea that the body reveals the person and um, that the person is ordered towards gift. Now we ask the question, okay, If our bodies express our personhood to the glory of God, we have to ask ourselves, why are there such a variety of human bodies, right? What makes us different? So uh, like all material beings, human beings each have differences, yet we all remain the same type of thing. We're the same substance. I'm neither Joe nor Emily. If your name's Joe or Emily, I just picked those names, right? I'm neither Joe nor Emily, um, yet we all share a human nature. Likewise, Christ and I are not the same person, but we do share human nature. We have the same form, the same substance in this respect. So anyone who's taken like a a a philosophy of being class or something like this is going to know where I'm going next. Matter is the principle of individuation for uh, all material things, right? Um, For each human person, as it is with every other uh, object, um, 
material thing. I have this matter and you have that matter. And therefore, we're numerically different, right? We each have certain accidents which adhere in us. Joe has black hair and I have brown hair and Emily has blonde hair, right? Joe is male and I'm male. Emily is female. But we're all human beings because we're all rational animals. These differences, the differences in the human persons that we see all around us are ordered to the glory of God, right? They're for the sake of the glory of God, who manifests his goodness, which is one and simple in him, through the distinction and multitude of things. In each thing and in each accident, some aspect, using accident in that, the term of like not substance, right? Um, the whole, some aspect of the divine goodness is manifested uniquely. And thus, together, the whole universe participates in the divine goodness um, in its multiplicity, and in its multiplicity participates in the divine goodness more perfectly and represents it better than any single creature, whatever. Now, given that that's true, and these differences are real in human beings, right? These accidental differences, we got to ask a question, right? Because there seem to be some accidents that can change, and there's some accidents that can't change, right? So, for example, uh, a human being, if he's not comically impeded, can laugh, right? It's like part of the, the essence of human nature to be able to, to laugh. Uh, it's, there's some sort of uh, property there um, that is more essential than, for example, like uh, I, could, I could cut off all my hair and I would still be a human being, right? Um, does that make sense? Good. Um, so we need to figure out where the sexual difference kind of lies. Right. We've got to figure out where, what type of accident is the sexual difference. Because it's certainly not a substantial difference, much to the chagrin of the guy who wrote men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right, or whatever it is. Right? Uh, you're, we're not a different species. Right? Uh, but what's the difference? Um, so I just want to suggest that uh, building on kind of a Thomistic understanding of the accidental nature of sex, that being male or being female is best thought of as related to the, to the person considered as a composite whole, right? It isn't, it, it's not in the, like the, the soul only, and it's not only in the body, but it's in this union of the soul and the body, Right? In this way, it constitutes a specific mode of relation which is predicated upon its teleological nature. Right? So why, is this, why do I argue this? Um, it distinguishes it from other types of accidents that don't affect the whole person in the same way. Um, recalling an earlier citation of John Paul II, the human body makes visible the human person. The body and its masculinity and femininity expressed both physically and psychologically manifests a person. And in so doing, the body expresses in itself the person's ordering towards other persons, both human and divine. Right? Sexuality is, is, a, is a certain way of being ordered towards other persons, both human and divine. So in this way, it becomes clear that the word and the differences of sex um, cannot help but be teleological, 
and relational in nature. The terms and states male and female make no sense without reference to one another. They don't make sense without reference to one another. And that's why I'm talking about both right now, even though my talk is specifically about masculinity. I can't talk about masculinity without somewhat talking about femininity. And I'm betting that whoever's giving the talk about femininity is also going to have to talk about masculinity a little bit, right? So um, human, they, they imply a power whose end can't be achieved without the cooperation of the other sex, right? So human nature considered as such has to include within itself male and female as potentials for actualization. The man and a, a man and a woman might be said to uh, might not might be said not so much to have a generative power as a cogenerative power, right? So there's it's only in relation to another person that generation can happen, like the the propagation of the species. Um, that's clear because uh, unlike the other powers of the human nature, right, existing, living, moving, thinking, neither man nor woman can procreate by himself or herself. Okay, so the human body, though, uh, especially but not reductively in, uh, in the genitals, shows a certain ordering towards the other. As the mouth is intended for chewing food for the primary purpose, purpose of nutrition of the body and only makes sense if food exists. So the genitals are intended for union with another human person of the opposite sex for the primary purpose of procreation. The male anatomy and way of being human only become fully understandable if the female anatomy uh, and way of being exist. Likewise, female anatomy, likewise vice versa, right? So thus man bears the divine image impressed in the body from the beginning, and man and woman constitute, so to speak, says John Paul II, two diverse ways of being a body that are proper to human nature in the unity of this image. This image is tied up with the community of persons to which every human person is called. Um, men and women are made in the image and likeness of God, complete in themselves. However, the expression of this on a human level made clear in their communion of persons, especially in marriage, is analogous to the communion of persons, which is found in the most blessed trinity. This communion is one of love that demands self-sacrifice and self-gift. Thus, um, masculinity and femininity, namely sex, right, is the original sign of a creative donation and at the same time the sign of a gift that man, male and female, becomes aware of as a gift lived, so to speak, in an original way. Human nature contains within itself the possibility of, being, of human persons being able to gift themselves. John Paul II refers to this as the spousal um, nature of the human person. The human person... Created as male, is created as male and female, and this shows forth the essentially spousal nature of humanity, right? That we are ordered towards uh, a, a, a gift of oneself. And properly actualizing one's masculinity or femininity as a gift to another is essentially related to finding the meaning to finding meaning for the human person, right? The meaning of your life in some way is tied up with this. 
It's clear then that man can't fully find himself except through that sincere gift of himself. And that self-gift is in some way determined by our sex. The body shows that the person is meant to be a gift. And this personal gift is to be given in a particular way in accord with the sex of the person. Okay, now given all of that, what is a man? Right, Taking uh, uh, our lead from... Um, from Matt Walsh's famous documentary, right? Uh, Yes, right? (laughs) I shouldn't move this too far, otherwise this is going to fall off. Um, What does it mean to be a human person who is a man? Or what is masculinity? So men and women are both called to make that sincere gift and to develop their capacity to make a sincere gift of themselves. Yet the manner will differ. Masculinity means... Living with receptive generosity. Living with receptive generosity. The philosopher and theologian Robert Joyce writes, I would define a man as a human being who both gives in a receiving way and receives in a giving way. Right? So you can receive and give as both men and women. But this is the difference. But is so structured in his being that he's emphatically inclined toward giving in a receiving way. Giving in a receiving way. And this is picking up on John Paul II's thought um, in The Theology of the Body. He kind of talks about this in the union of the spouses. The nature of being a man is, uh, is an emphasis on giving in a receiving way, um, it, in the gift of self. This is seen uh, particularly clearly in the sexual or marital act, both in its unitive and procreative dimensions. The man is the initiator right, in, in, uh, in, in the very uh, act of sex. This giving in, in a receiving sort of way emphasizes the superabundance and otherness of God, right? That's going back to that, how the accidental differences show forth and manifest God's goodness in different ways, right? So a, a masculine way of being in the world emphasizes God's superabundance and his otherness and uh, like the transcendence of God in a complementary fashion to the feminine emphasis on withinness and interiority of being, right? So receptive generosity then characterizes what it means to be a truly masculine man. Masculinity is a mode of being manifested in a wide variety of ways, but these are all connected by the call to total gift, total self-gift, in a receiving sort of way. The total actualization of this potential is found in fatherhood both spiritual and physical, right? Now, um, that type of fatherhood, I was talking with my brother last night, and he has three small kids, um, always, always involves receptive um, generosity and almost always requires some type of sacrifice, right? That's what I mean by a receiving sort of way. When Christ goes to the cross, he receives the cross, because he's giving himself, right? Because he's offering himself generously, he receives this cross. So also a father, spiritual or uh, physical, right? Receives the suffering, receives the circumstances, receives the person in the act of giving of himself, right? Um, So masculinity then is absolutely contrary to machismo, right? Like, the stereotypical, like, 
whatever. I don't know. I'm not even going to get it. I'm not even going to give examples. I'm not even going to dignify it with that, right? And effeminacy, right? There's this kind of, um, uh, it, it lies in the capacity to give of oneself while receiving the other. And, the, and in the, receiving the circumstances associating, associated with making a seal, sincere gift of oneself, right? Including suffering, including difficulty, including um, like putting up with things and uh, the, like the manly virtue kind of, of, of courage, the manly type of courage. There is then not a cookie cutter mold of what a man is. Rather, masculinity is directed to fatherhood, to paternity, giving of oneself in a receiving sort of way so as to generate life in the other. Paraphrasing Edith Stein, who talks about this in relation to women, I hope I'm not stealing. (laughs) (laughs) This means that there may indeed be differences on average between men and women, tastes, but that on the level of the individual male or female, right, uh, masculinity or femininity can be lived out in a variety, a wide variety of ways, all characterized by a receptive generosity. Um, the diverse interests of men that we hold up of worthy, as worthy of imitation through the ages shows this, right? Think of the great masculine saints. Some were warriors, others were poets. But they were connected by receptive generosity, um, which allowed them to accept the circumstances of their lives and the challenges of loving those around them well. St. Thomas Aquinas was clearly an intellectual, right? And it's likely St. Francis is a little less so, right? That just shows my, uh, my uh, kind of uh, bias there towards Thomas. But um, our tradition, uh, writes one author, abounds with a wide variety of masculine men. Poets, mystics, kings, politicians, preachers, martyrs, businessmen, all of whom constitute concrete examples of masculinity, right? And we ask the question, what does masculinity look like in the future? A holy Catholic man might be an NFL quarterback (laughs) as much as he might be an artist or a poet or an intellectual or a businessman. Our understanding of masculinity has to be flexible enough to allow for the expression, its expression in a wide variety of contexts. For all of these men are worthy of imitation. In particular, though, we look at Jesus as the expression of the totality of masculinity. Ecce homo, behold the man. Now I know for all of you Latin scholars, uh, homo is not necessary, necessarily like identified exactly with masculinity, right? It, it could be, but, um, but down through the ages, that has come to, or at least in my own life, not, maybe not down through the ages. I think people have done this before, but you look at Christ suffering for his bride and you see in him the epitome of what it means to be a man. He receptively gave of himself totally for the well-being of his bride. Jesus' entire life is conditioned on that idea. He received the suffering associated with making a total gift of himself. And thus, he gave life to the church. What does that mean for you men here? Right? We must learn to be generous. 
in a receiving sort of way, looking for ways to imitate him in loving sacrifice for the sake of others will allow our masculinity to be completely developed. We look for ways to protect and to provide and to encourage others to have life and life in abundance, right? That's the essence of masculinity, to give oneself away and receive the person in return. Thank you so much.